0: Hello to everyone from Doc HQ. I'm Gopika, and welcome to our podcast, Health Tech for Businesses. Here we will be talking to experts about several interesting topics from AI and data privacy to health equity and digital health solutions for businesses. To kick off our podcast, we want to talk about the most pressing issue today, which is the coronavirus. This pandemic has inflicted a wave of uncertainty upon all of us And has raised several questions within the business community. Many CEOs are thinking how can we create a safe working environment for our employees? How can we protect our employees? How can we safeguard our business? So, for the next few weeks, we will seek to answer these questions and many more by running a mini series on the COVID pandemic and its impact on businesses. Today, we will launch this series with a discussion with none other. Then Professor Mike Rosenberg from ESA Business School in Barcelona. Mike is a professor in the Strategic Management Department at ESA. He lectures in both the MBA and the Executive Education programs, where he teaches strategy, geopolitics, and sustainability. He has written books on these topics and also publishes a weekly blog called Doing Business on Earth. He has extensive experience in strategy and management consulting in the automotive sector. I thought it would be particularly interesting to have Mike here, because he has done not one or two, but 23 webinars on the coronavirus pandemic. Our discussion today will revolve around his take on the key learnings from these webinars. We're indeed very happy to have him here. So without further ado, let me welcome Professor Mike Rosenberg. Hello, Mike. How are you doing today?
1: I'm fantastic, Opika. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: Thank you so much. So let's get started with our first question. You've done all these webinars over the past few months. You've literally seen the evolution of the crisis, I can say, over these webinars. You know, there's constantly new information about the pandemic. There could potentially be a second outbreak. Spain, in fact, may be going into a second lockdown for all that we know. So how do you see the situation evolving and where do you think this is headed? Thanks, Kopika.
1: And it's really challenging times, even from the information overload that most of us are experiencing. There is so much data out there and there is so many opinions out there. I don't know if you have this experience that you're speaking with your friends, you're speaking with your relatives, and everybody has an opinion about just about everything. And they're getting their information from everywhere. And I think one of the things which I recommend to people is to pick the sources of data that you trust and stick to them. I get data from there. There's a John Hopkins Observatory, which gives us the numbers. I look at the WHO. I look at the local health authorities. And I read the New York Times because I kind of like the New York Times. But I basically don't look at anything on the internet, ever, except the New York Times online. And then whether you read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or the Guardian, that's not the point. I, I think the point is there are organizations in the world which have proper editorial control, which try to do their best to tell the truth which try to do the best to check the facts of things. And I think it's important, especially for leadership, people in leadership positions, to to be able to tell their people things which are more or less true, or at least have been checked, and not to kind of respond to the latest post on some website or something, and certainly never to get your news from Facebook. (laughs) I think that's absolutely clear that that's the wrong place to get news. Now, given that, where are we? And I think it depends on where you are in the world because uh, different countries have what they call at the Kennedy School of Government you know different degrees of policy space meaning what can they actually do and the ability of a country to react to this virus or to other emergencies have to do with the money they have so rich countries can do more than poor countries clearly very poor countries cannot lock down their population because they simply don't have you know the people don't have the money the government doesn't have the money you know it's just, it's just not possible the institutions and the strength of those institutions even the philosophy of government, So, for example, China and some other authoritarian countries, Singapore, for example, they can take steps which in a liberal democracy you simply cannot do. You know, the quarantine in Hong Kong, you're given a bracelet, you know, which tracks where you are and you sit in your house because if you leave your house, the bracelet will tell the police that you're out of your house. We can't do that everywhere. So, there's a philosophical issue. And then finally, there's a leadership issue, which is even if you have the right institutions, even if you have the money, Even if you have the best medical technology available, as shown in the United States, if you don't have the proper leadership, you know, the place can be a total disaster. So you put those things together and you create a very different environment in different countries. And frankly, we consider ourselves somewhat blessed because in Spain, you know, while it's not the richest country in the world, it does have a public health care system. And even though the government is kind of squabbling with each other and in different territorial disputes, it is competent. It is capable. And I think it has shown that it can demonstrate real leadership in times of crisis. So then the last point is where we are with the whole kind of health approach. And this has to do with testing, the ability to trace, uh, to find people and trace where they've been, et cetera. There's this whole vaccine story and finding the ability to treat this disease for that uh, relatively small percentage of people who get it, who actually need doctor's treatment or in the worst case, the intensive care unit and, and serious, serious treatment because they get it really badly. And in that whole space, I think there's a lot of uh, information and a lot of activity going on on the vaccine side, which I understand why it's so important. I understand why they're doing it. I think testing is perhaps even more important. And testing, there's a lot of stuff going on. I think September, I've been told there will be commercially available tests in the UK, you know, at the local drugstore. And the more and more people get tested. And the more and more protocols there exist for, for tracing those people who don't have the antibodies, who do have the antibodies, who have the symptoms, the more we do there, and the more we do on the treatment side for the people who do become critically ill, then perhaps we can avoid some of the dangers that are inherent with any kind of program to vaccinate that total population. Now, this is complicated. And part of the complication is none of us are virologists. None of us are epidemiologists. So we have to base our facts on something and kind of live with the situation we have. So it's, it's very different in different places. You know, right now in, in most of Central Europe and most of Eastern uh, Western Europe, the prevalence, the number of people actually have the disease and its live, is very, very low, which means the statistical probability that anybody gets it in a given day is relatively low. That doesn't mean that there are not outbreaks, and there has been an outbreak here in Catalonia. But in generally speaking, in certain countries, the situation is very, very stable, while in other parts of the world, like in Texas and Florida and some other places in the United States, so, at this moment in time, totally out of control.
0: So, like you said, different countries are adopting different approaches, but now let's just take a step back and look at companies and you know different industries. You had an interesting discussion with Emmanuel Lare from Schneider Electric. So, from what I understood, they were focusing more on regional supply chains and a matrix organisational structure and several other measures. So, what is your opinion on how they handled the crisis? And what do you think this crisis means for energy companies overall, and where do you see it going ahead in the future?
1: Uh, Sure. So Emmanuel Lagarig is the chief innovation officer of Schneider. Before that, he was chief strategy officer. He lives with his family in Hong Kong because the CEO of the company, uh, Jean-Pascal Tricoré, some years ago moved headquarters from Paris to Hong Kong to kind of indicate that, that Schneider is a global company, which I think is very telling. They did fairly well during the crisis for a couple of reasons. One is they're in the energy management business and and automation business, and demand for their products has remained fairly constant. There's been a dip in demand during confinement, but even confinement, as people come out of confinement, they want to fix up their home offices, and they want to invest more money in their houses, and, and companies want to invest more money in automation because robots don't get sick, et cetera. So their demand has been solid. But what's really helped them get through the crisis is two things. One is in the supply chain area, they are in the first place regional, because if you think about electrical components, every country has its own laws and its own regulations. So they've had to have local supply, but it's also redundant. They have two suppliers for everything they sell, everything they make, every component they buy. They have a policy in place of always having two suppliers in different places. So when Mexico was locked down, they could source from the Philippines. When China went out, they had other poor sources of supply for the regional business in Asia. So that has helped them quite a lot by having a very resilient supply chain and having built in that resilience years ago and accepting a cost trade-off for that resilience. So many companies around the world have built these really complicated and very, very cost effective global supply chains. But if anything happens to disrupt the supply, they're in trouble. So these guys had resilience and duplication in the supply chain which helped them. The other thing that they did or they had and were able to do was Schneider has country managers for every major country they do business in and they've kept those country managers in place even though the flavor of the month or the style in many companies is to have global businesses with global business heads and kind of broad regional directors who are in charge of, you know, Asia Pacific or Europe and to take the role of the country manager, the head of Spain or the head of Indonesia or the head of Kenya, out because you don't need them. You can have a head of Africa. But let's face it, Africa is 54 different countries. Schneider made the choice to keep those people in place. And then Jean-Pascal Tricore, the CEO, he made the leadership decision to put them in charge of the company's response to the virus and to give them complete decision control as to how to keep their people safe, how to keep the business open, and how to run through the day-to-day. That combination of the right structure and the right leadership, I think, is what really helped them. And again, I don't want to beat up Donald Trump too badly, although he deserves everything he gets. But you know, his, his leadership has been first to not provide governmental leadership from the federal government, to give the problem deliberately to the governors of the country, but then to undermine them in the eyes of the people. And the point is, is if you give local leadership, and you should in a crisis like this, you have to empower the local leaders. Support them, defend them, and respect their decisions. So this this is really what I think Schneider has done very very well. This combination of resilient supply chain and local leadership in times of crisis.
0: Speaking of supply chains, right? The distressed supply chains and the disruption in different channels. This has been a major impact even on the shipping and logistics industry. You had an interesting conversation with Rolf Haben Jansen, who's the CEO of Hapag Lloyd, and I noticed that in that webinar he explained that one of the major measures the company implemented was having extra containers ready. Could you throw some light on how they handled this crisis overall? And again, what do you think is the path ahead for logistics and shipping in this situation?
1: I mean, the Hapag Loy story is a great story about how you know every industry is a little bit different, but the fundamental ideas are somewhat common. So this is the third biggest container shipping company in the world. They have 250 ships. They manage 12 million boxes, uh, containers you know, in in all these different ships and all the ports, et cetera, et cetera. And as they saw the crisis coming, first, a couple of ports in China were closed and people were closed to the ports. And then there was a couple of ships, cruise ships in particular, where lots of people had the virus. You know, what do you do? And they saw early on that there may be a problem in having enough containers available where they need them. Because these 12 million containers are, are moving around the world all the time. But if the port's closed for three weeks, those containers can't get out. So they ordered 100,000 extra containers just in case. And this kind of move of saying, okay, what business am I in? What are the issues which might affect me as things unfold? And what do I have to do just in case and, and develop your plan B before you need it? This, I think, is something about crisis management that everybody can take learning from. What Hapak-Lloyd experienced very clearly is this crisis has had, a, in terms of economic impact, what started as a demand interruption because the factories of Wuhan, China were shut. And what was going to happen to China production of many, many things was in doubt, and some of the ports were shut. So this is a, a supply shock, quickly turned into a demand shock, as countries like Italy and Spain and other places put in confinement or lockdown. So then people stopped going to shopping. And you know even though people buy stuff online, they don't buy as that much online compared to what they buy face-to-face. So it became a demand shock. And of course, all of that affects the m- movement of goods and services around the world. And many of those goods, finished goods, go into containers. So this affects the container business. Now, what's interesting is if you read about people abandoning their global supply chains and becoming more resilient and doing all this stuff, you might say, well, that's the end of globalization as we know it. But Rolf was very clear. With 250 ships, number three in the world, he said, yeah, maybe some, some patterns will shift, but globalization is deeply embedded. We're not going to start making television sets in England again. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So that fundamental trade patterns will continue, at least in their view, for many, many years. Yes, there'll be some shifts, but but globalization as such, he expects to stay in place, uh, although there might be some shifts in demand. So I thought the whole story was very optimistic. It was very uh, reassuring to some degree. But again, like so many other companies, took extreme measures to keep their people safe and extreme measures to keep the business running. And I think that's what this is, you know, really showing the companies with a clear idea of what their mission is. They said, okay, this is our mission. How do we fulfill our mission in difficult times? And these are our people, and Hapagloid has 13,000 people, many of them on the ships. What do we do to have to keep them safe? They send most of their shore personnel to their houses. The people on the ships have to stay on the ships. But they put you know, protocols in place long before many other people did to, to make sure that those, that operation was as safe as it can be and those guys were as safe as they could be.
0: So, Mike, like you said, different companies are undertaking different measures. We also know that companies are trying to create you know, a safe-to-return working environment for employees. They are taking filled questionnaires for employees, collecting their data, asking them to report their symptoms. So now I'd like to look at this a bit differently. I'd like to understand the link between collecting this data to ensure a safe working environment and the ethical implications of this. You've also had several conversations regarding ethical scenarios to be considered in this situation. Companies not only have to collect this data, but they also have to understand the compliance to GDPR regulations. So what is your opinion on this? Should information be collected at any cost during a pandemic? How do you think Employers should balance
1: this. So, before I get to information, let me go a little bit back and, and talk about the ethical responsibility of business, which is fundamentally to, to, to keep people safe in, in, this, in this kind of environment, but also to keep the business running, to fulfill its mission, and to keep the jobs there. And many governments around the world approved kind of a temporary layoff plans or, or salary reduction programs and such. What's the ethical thing to do to keep people, you know, pay them every month or to, to send them home? with a government check for some small percentage of their salary. And what my colleagues you know, think is very clear is that the, the ethical responsibility of a business leader is to keep the business running so that those jobs are available when the crisis passes, so that people still have a job to go back to. So that's perhaps even more important. to Keep people on this, the payroll and then the company goes bust. That doesn't help anybody except for those few months. But keeping people safe is clearly a priority. You, know, you can't expect people to come to work if it's going to put the health of themselves or their loved ones at risk. So you have to take whatever measures you need to do to do that now, in terms of privacy, this to me is is just connected to another aspect of human dignity. So if I do have to make layoffs, will I do it properly? Will I do it with respect for the individual? Will I tell people why we're doing it? talk to them honestly about when we're going to be able to bring them back to work and do everything I can to make it as fair as possible? If I do need people's data to be sure that, that they can come to work and they need to get tested and I want to make sure that they did actually get tested, and I want to check, even though that perhaps is going over a line that I would have had before. Well, then I need the data now. How to get that data? How to keep it safe? Do you need to create a different department, make a special person to do that? This is, I think, is where it gets to be interesting and important, which is business leader needs to do what they need to do, but they need it to do it in a way which respects the rights and dignity of the individuals who work for them. I think companies which can do that, which can keep the doors open, can do it at a reasonable cost, can keep their people safe, they're going to win in the marketplace because their customers are going to respect what they do. The government's going to allow them to keep working. But more importantly, the people involved will say, you know, this company has done the right thing. If you do have to collect sensitive data from employees, who gets the data? Does their first-line supervisor get the data? Does the head of HR get the data? Or do you create a new department, which is the people who keep this very sensitive data and that's all they do? And they only tell other people what they need to tell them when they need to tell them because that's what they need to do. I don't know. I'm not trying to design an organization, but I'm trying to say you don't want to give sensitive data to people who aren't trained to handle it. And in many cases, you know, some of the people in different places really aren't the right ones to hold that data. So, so I think, again, if for companies to do the right thing, it's to go back to what is the mission and purpose of the organization? Can we achieve the mission in a way which makes sense to be who we are? At ESA Business School, for example, we sent the professors home. At a certain point, closed the school, sent all the students home. Now, you're, you're looking at my blackboard. This is actually a chalkboard in my house You know, because we had to set up a, an office in my house so, I, so we could teach. And all of us have these little offices set up in any way we could so we can continue our mission of training leaders to build a better world. Even if we can't do it face to face. So, you know, what's the mission? Can we do our mission? How do we do it in a way which respects the dignity of the people involved? And I think this has to do with their pay, it has to do with their right to get back to work if we can continue the business, and it has to do with their privacy. This is just all aspects of the same story. And I think if companies take that attitude, they'll find the right way to go ahead. If they don't pay attention to these things, of course, they might get in trouble with GDPR or other government regulations. Or more importantly, they might lose the confidence and respect
0: of their own employees. So shifting the focus to technology a bit. As you know, we at Doc HQ, we have developed a tool called Clarity, which is backed by an AI-based algorithm. And that can categorize a company's employees into low, medium, or high risk. And basically recommends the company which optimized testing strategy they can go for. So we believe that AI can you know, serve as a tool for better decision-making. It can even help redesign workspaces. And that's the aim with clarity. So how do you think AI and technologies that, like these can help businesses during this time?
1: It's a great question, uh, Gopika. We had a session with my colleague, Samsa Samela. He's a Finnish professor. All he reads about is AI, passionate about AI. Deeply convinced that AI is going to change the nature of business everywhere in all aspects of society and business. Now, this virus, what most people agree is that you've probably seen about 10 years of digital transformation in four months. You know, the idea that all professors can teach online. I mean, before, there's about 10 of us who typically taught online, and everybody else says, why would I bother? You know, now everybody's teaching online. So it's just a small example. The healthcare industry has been in dire need of digital transformation for many years. And many people have been talking about it, and some in specific places are doing amazing things. But in general, it's an industry which is ripe for fundamental change and digitalization. And AI will clearly have a part of that. Now, when you take all of that into the little I know about Clarity's products, because you guys are the experts of your own products. But the issue, as I said before, HR directors, line managers, general managers of divisions and companies and country managers, none of them Are epidemiologists, none of them are virologists, none of them are experts at healthcare or healthcare privacy. None of them know anything about this, really, except what they've learned in the last four months. So they desperately need a management toolkit which does respond to the things they do know how to do and takes away some of the specialty knowledge that is needed, at least puts it in a different place, either through an outsourced expert company or through an algorithm or whatever, so that they can do what they know how to do. Without getting into spaces which they don't understand. So in that context, you know, if the clarity tool and the little I understand it is private, it's secure and it's smart in the sense, it can tell an HR director, Hey, you know, I'm not sure Rosenberg should be coming to work. Then the HR director can say, Professor, you know, according to the algorithm, you know, you may be at risk because the way you answer the question here, here, maybe you should go to your GP before and, you know, do another test before you come to work. Because then it's putting the whole thing in a conversation which an HR manager does know how to do. Because if I had broken my arm or had been in a car accident, he know what to say to me or she know what to say to me. So the point is, if the tool can help people do their job the way they know how to do their job, and if the tools can speak their language and demystify some of the stuff and leave the specialty knowledge in, a, in where it needs to be and keep the data safe, then I think it could be very, very compelling
0: mike you spoke about digital transformation and i think it is something to be considered strategically at the end of the day so this goes to my last question you know from a strategy point of view and you are the strategy expert how do you think ceos can you know strategically use a combination of risk assessment testing teleworking social distancing measures etc to sort of gain an edge over their competitors or you know gain leadership in their industry i mean do you see it as a strategic opportunity? Absolutely.
1: I mean, our alumni association, you know, this have been collecting stories about people who are doing amazing things during the crisis. There's a whole bunch of different parts to it. One is companies which have done, let's say, whatever the right thing is, clearly they've done the right thing, have gained enormous quantities of respect from their customers, from the authorities, and from their own employees. This is absolutely clear. I have a student from Ireland in one of our executive programs. They his company, at O'Neill's, they make sportswear. They make equipment for sporting teams and track suits and running gear and all this kind of stuff. And they found as Ireland went into confinement, no one's going to buy any of their stuff. They've got all this fabric in the warehouse. So they started making scrubs, or hospital uniforms. And actually, they made very beautiful and very nice fitting and very comfortable hospital uniforms because they have all the sportswear experience. And in fact, they now have a new division, which is the hospital uniform division, because they actually do it better and at a reasonable price compared to the stuff that Ireland used to be importing. And of course, the Irish government's delighted to have a local supplier, et cetera, et cetera. And they've gained huge amounts of credibility by doing that and a new business. So that's one level of, of the story. Companies which have been putting regulators together and making masks and all this kind of stuff, all these guys have been able to say, look, we're doing the right thing. And that's been helpful. The second level is if you can continue to do your business and keep your doors open while others are struggling this is clearly a competitive advantage. And if you can show the world that you're doing it responsibly, ethically, and in a safe way, even better. Customers will respond better. And more important than anything, employees are responding. I've had people, alumni who I've never met before, writing to me about our webinar series. I've had colleagues in the school, you know, not, and not just professors, but just random colleagues saying, Professor, thanks so much for doing the series. And in fact, there's a whole bunch of people doing the series. I'm, I'm just one of the people. But People want to be proud of the organizations they work for. They want to feel that they're doing the right thing. So if the company can do the right thing, keep its people safe, fulfill its mission, and at the same time, do it at a reasonable cost, I think they're going to win all over the place.
0: I think that is a fitting end to our discussion, Professor. Thank you so much for taking the time out today and giving us your insights. It was it was absolutely wonderful having you here. I think all of us here at Doc HQ, and I'm sure you yourself, are at least optimistic that companies businesses everyone can tide over this pandemic and i think the key message is definitely resilience and efficiency so that companies can come out stronger so thank you so much once again thank you gopika and good luck with the new product thank you